Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game Gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified-vehicles slash beyond-zero-vision. Toyota, let's go places. Quick housekeeping note, a literal one. Uh, Matt and I were so into the thunderstorms that were happening while we were recording uh, that, uh, as we may mention on air, uh, we left uh, some doors and some windows open. Uh, so that is why you're hearing some fuzz for the first few minutes on my end. Oh, no, it's on my end, too. And uh, just to be clear, I was the one who suggested it. And I am sorry, everybody. <laughs> and, uh, we use a software called Isotope, which gets rid of, you know, background noise and stuff. Uh, we, I wasn't thinking, so sorry. So please welcome our special guest who's there for the first 12 minutes, the rain. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is on an adventure, but he'll be back very soon. 
They Call Me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccans. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, Matt, it is, let's let's paint a little bit of a, a audio picture here. It is a wonderful, wonderfully stormy, dark afternoon here in our fair metropolis of Atlanta. Uh, you and I have survived a tornado to come come to record today. Oh yeah, man. We we fought through that tornado. I had my shield. Uh, I had it was a bastard sword. It was a little little large to wield for one hand, but uh, we fought through it. No, <laughs> no, but we really are. We were under a tornado warning as of just a little while ago, and it is still storming like mad out here. And be forewarned, you may hear the sounds of said storm in this recording, as well as uh, my dog Penny as she hyperventilates below my chair. Yes, and uh, yeah, we've both got little parts of our recording areas uh, open so that you can can get the full ambiance of what happened. And, you know, that is... It is true, Matt, when I say we survived the storm, it's kind of like how when people are in the same room as a celebrity, they say they met them. You know what I mean? So we can say we were in the same sort of room as a tornado. But luckily, uh, to our knowledge, there hasn't been a ton of serious destruction yet. We'll see what happens at the end of this episode, because uh, just like us in Atlanta today, you might be surprised by how many people and how many places in the world are very close to destruction, utter destruction. And it's something that is existential. It's dreadful. We don't talk about it all the time because it is scary stuff. And it should be. In an earlier episode, though, Matt, uh, we talked about a guy named A.Q. Khan. Uh, who is one of the uh, most influential individuals in the recent history of nuclear warfare. He, uh, he is the guy who was terrified that India would be able to take over his adoptive country of Pakistan when they gained nuclear ability. So he began a one-man mission uh, to give Pakistan the bomb and then Somewhere along the way, he experienced mission creep and started selling nuclear tech to the highest bidder. He cast a shadow that's going to be with us long after many of the folks listening to this recording today have passed away. It's just true. And when we talked about that, we talked about what we called an often invisible war that countries wage on one another to prevent other countries from getting nuclear weapons. And the long story short is it's it's very much a uh, do as I say, not as I do kind of deal. It's very much um, some rules for these, some rules for me. I'm loving this thunder. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nations that have nuclear weapons in general do not want other countries to have them. Even if they're quote unquote friends, uh, I guarantee you they will do anything within their power to prevent other countries from having this world-ending ability. And so if you're a country that unfortunately does not have a nuke, you're going to feel threatened by these nuclear-capable adversaries. And if you're a rational actor, which we always assume, then you are going to... You are going to conspire to get some kind of safety, whether that's working in secret to make your own bomb 
or whether that is buddying up as much as you can with an ally that already has nuclear capability, you got to do something. And today's story is about a little known example of the lengths countries go to in this invisible war. Uh, so we hope that you've had a chance to check out our earlier episode on AQ Khan. Uh, and it's, you know, it's pretty good. The main criticism we get is there is a lack of Matt Frederick, which I, you know, I agree with on that one. Have you seen the hate mail? I've not. But as a listener of that episode, I did not feel a lack of Matt Frederick. It was really good. And the back and forth was was perfect. It kept me engaged. So, hey, I loved that episode. Uh, we cut out all the parts. We're like, where's Matt? Jeez. No, but I don't believe you for a second. It was perfect. Dude, Paul can confirm. Well, anyhow, to to establish uh, the roots of this conspiracy, the, today's conspiracy, uh, we have to start uh, really like at the end of World War II is usually when these stories start. So here are the facts. Yes, we will be describing to you this cat and mouse game a little bit further of the struggle to attain a nuclear force. And here's the deal. There, the the desire of countries that already have nuclear capability to prevent those who don't have it from gaining it, there is it is so high. There is so much incentive behind that that often these countries, whether it's the United States, whether it's Israel, name your country with nuclear capability, they will often play on the edges of the law, if not break the own law of their land, in order to to stop it from happening. It's, it's often an argument of national security for whichever country you're talking about and a play for the, quote, greater good. Yeah. When we think in terms of analogies, it's like um, imagine that your neighbor owns a gun. Your neighbor owns a couple of guns. And you think, well, I get along OK with my neighbor. We're not celebrating each other's birthdays or whatever, but we say hi if we both happen to get the mail at the same time. Still, I would kind of like a gun, too. And, and in the U.S., where guns are pretty easy to get, that's a very simple series of steps. Uh, but imagine if you were in a situation where your neighbor said, nah, I don't know, bro, I've got a gun, so we're pretty much fine. And I, I should, you know, if there's a problem, just come to me, man. Don't do something crazy like try to buy a gun because I might have to show up to your house. Yeah, and especially don't make a gun. Like, if you're going to construct a gun from some steel and other parts you've got, maybe some black powder you've got, uh, we're going to have a real problem. Oh, and spoiler alert, Matt, making guns at home comes up in an episode uh, down the line that we're going to uh, delve into later. Today for us, but in a few days for mm -hmm. uh, everyone listening, because of the magic timey-wimey stuff about podcasting, <laughs> you're absolutely right, dude. There is a pattern at play, uh, and it's a pattern that a lot of people pay attention to because some countries that were on the path toward creating nuclear weapons, although they might never say they're creating nuclear weapons, uh, they later made international agreements to stop pursuing nuclear tech at all. And in return, they were obliterated. Libya is a great example of this. Uh, well, a horrific example of what happens. 
And of course, as we said previously, the main Western reason for the Libyan intervention was not human rights related at all. France wanted to maintain control of the regional currency. It is a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy theory. Uh, do check it out if you are thinking, I wonder if I could be more depressed today. I, uh, I was recently visiting with some in-laws, uh, one of whom, it, let's he was in various intelligence fields. One of them dealt directly with Libya, where he had a need to know on a lot of stuff occurring there. And we had a whole discussion about Libya and uh, what you just said, Ben, very much holds up from personal experience of somebody I spoke with. Mm, yeah, it's better to know the truth, even when it's ugly. Do not mistake this as a defense of Muammar Gaddafi. It most certainly is not. I just feel like when we talk about the billions of dollars spent and the millions of lives irreparably affected, we should be honest about why it happened. Uh, so let, with the nukes, let's say you're uh, the ruler of North Korea, right? You're the Ayatollah of Iran. Uh, any number of countries that have been considered antagonistic to the Western order of the world or the way the Western world wants everything to work. Uh, if you see what happened in Libya, it's pretty easy to connect the dots. You're watching that and you're the leader of North Korea. You're thinking, I will absolutely never give up nuclear weapons. I know the score. I saw what happened. You cannot trust these people, uh, which is uh, reasonable. Whether or not you agree, the logic is there. And then if you're, say, uh, the Ayatollah or if you are in a leadership position in Iran, then you might, again, very validly think, this is what will happen to us if we don't get across that nuclear finish line. So there are regional hotspots around the world. Uh, leaders are playing some variation of this game all the time. And, you know, like we said earlier, there are a lot of countries, Europe, Western Europe's a great example. There are a lot of countries that have been up to now satisfied to, uh, to posse up, to Voltron up with existing nuclear powers under agreements like NATO and stuff like that. Uh, and they're agreeing not to pursue their own nuclear warheads. In exchange, they're saying, you, this country I'm agreeing with, will step in and you will you will save me if something you'll have my back, at least if something goes sideways. Yeah. But we can't assume this is a sustainable situation. Very few things are. No. So, you know, when when we're talking about the places in the world where these kinds of conflicts are occurring. We really look at the Middle East. It's by far the region that has, let's say that is in the most danger of experiencing some kind of nuclear warfare, actual hot war with a nuke. And a lot of it just has to do with the number of countries in the region that want to have nuclear weapons versus the number that don't. There's only one country in the Middle East currently that officially has nuclear capability, although it's it's official unofficial, but that's Israel. And we've talked about it before, how it's kind of a it's a weird situation to talk about uh, nuclearly capable Israel because uh, it's a bit of a weird situation. Yeah. You know what? Let's modify our analogy a little. Let's go back to your neighbor who's been okay. getting really weird for a while. <laughs> OK, so your neighbor has a garage. Everybody knows they have a garage. Mm hmm. Your neighbor, it looks like a big garage. Uh, your neighbor may have a car. 
but they get super sketchy whenever you bring it up. They say, <laughs> I maybe I have a car. Maybe I don't. Well, I've never seen a car go in or out of the garage. Like, I've never actually seen it. Tell you what, though, man, you don't keep an eye on those trash cans. You might have to find out. You don't want to find out if I have a car, do you? You, and, don't, uh, you don't have a car, right? right? You're not even thinking about getting a car, right? You shouldn't. The bus works fine, buddy, right? We can agree. Because we, you know, do not have a car. It's really Schrodinger's car over here. But... Uh, <laughs> If you ever need one, we could find a way. Anyway, it would be better for you and I to agree that you and none of our other neighbors need a car. (laughs) Let's just end it there. Uh, So, like, that's that's a really weird in this analogy on an individual level. This sounds really intense and weird, right? But a car is not the same thing as a nuclear weapon. And Israel's position is itself by design, uh, somewhat conspiratorial. Uh, they, they have never, the government has never officially confirmed or denied that it has nukes. It absolutely does. But they, they, they have a policy that's somewhat euphemistically called deliberate ambiguity. So they'll issue statements that are incredibly, like, weirdly worded. Like the the closest uh, the official government has come to admitting this is saying stuff like Israel will not be the first country to introduce nuclear weapons to the Middle East. And that statement hinges on the word introduce. Introduce, I think, means use. So Mm. this uh, so you can see how it's weird and also, you know, compounded by the fact that over the years, uh, various leaders of this country have essentially said, yeah, we have nuclear weapons, but that's just them speaking in elusive political tones. The other piece of the puzzle here, if we're going to Pepe Silvia this a bit, is Mm -hmm. that Israel has also refused to sign the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, meaning they're saying, look, we're not saying we do or we don't have them, but uh, it's it, it wouldn't be good for our national security if we signed you guys agreement. So I'm not saying (laughs) there's a car in the garage. I'm just saying I feel like I'm not in a good spot where I would sign something saying that I'm not going to have as many cars. as I I mean, who's to say I may not want or need a car at some point? We have this garage. I think we're just going to we're just going to stay for a while and, you know, maybe we'll take action later. That's kind of what's happening because it really is. It's kind of silly. And look, I can't confirm this personally, but it is kind of just an open secret slash just everybody is aware that Israel does have nuclear capability. It's more of a question of how powerful are the individual warheads? How many of those warheads do they actually have? How many are deployable, like readily deployable? How many are just sitting somewhere in a garage and or <laughs> and or just large military facility. Um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird situation. It is. And it's something that's understandable because secrecy for two reasons. First, secrecy is key to a lot of operations like this because it also allows for plausible deniability. But then secondly, there may be a bit of a um, long term in a way, a long-term greater good argument, because as we'll see for that country in that part of the world to go official with this, 
uh, could very likely set off uh, or exacerbate the nuclear arms race because being able to lie to yourself and say, oh, there's nothing official, that's a very easy and somewhat stable position to take. But I love that you use the word silly. Matt, this is one of the silliest open secrets in <laughs> the region, if not the world. Sure, okay, sure, you have a garage and, and don't have a car. Fine, whatever. Just don't drive into my house. And the reason they're doing this is because you think about it, you remember that game Jenga? Did you ever play Jenga? Yeah, dude. There is a great version of it. It's like the human-sized Jenga. Yeah. It stacks up above your head or right at your head. Love mm. it. I've never I've never played that one, but I've I've seen it. I think we were we we're on a work trip or something. And then, Oh yeah. Hella bougie bowling alley that had one. I that's all I remember. <laughs> that's true. Maybe we could go back and, and give it a try one day and then just uh be Super cool people and say, this is like an analogy for nuclear weapons in the Middle <laughs> East because we're great at parties. We'll uh, just put up a little sign next to it. <laughs> yes, yes. And now it's performance art. We need a mm-hmm. grant for this. So, yeah, it's, it's a good comparison because the situation with nukes in the Middle East, well, the situation in the Middle East in general is like a carefully stacked, very precarious tower of radioactive Jenga pieces because some countries did, you know, to one level or another, they got close to chasing nukes, only to have foreign inve- intervention arrive in a very brutal way. Because Iraq, for instance, was um, was definitely trying to get nuclear capability and may have done so if it weren't for uh, the U.S. invasion. Other countries have done something a little trickier they place specific conditions on their position in the nuclear game, and these may change um, in the very near near future, actually. Yeah. Uh, a couple of countries to talk about here. Turkey has signaled it might be looking into getting some nuclear weapons, uh, and it's specifically in response to <laughs> some actions that are being put forth by the Biden administration. You know, hopefully that doesn't actually occur, but... Turkey's at least saying it's possible, and Saudi Arabia just over and over and over has done the same, signaling that it, it will uh, it will bring itself up to match any capability of any other group in the in the Middle East or country or actor in the Middle East that has nuclear capability. So it's like uh, we will see you and call. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we will call your whatever you're playing. That is interesting. I didn't even think about Saudi Arabia when we were discussing how Israel is the only nuclear capable actor is I, I genuinely don't know, but I always assumed Saudi Arabia was, uh, or at least was close to it. But, uh, it's just a, a lack or maybe it's just a hole in my knowledge. Yeah. They're, um, they signed the non-proliferation treaty, uh, and they've, They've been accused of working on nuclear programs. Their their official position is that uh, they right now have plans to create a domestic nuclear energy industry. But again, if you have a if you have the ener- if you have the setup to you know uh, be a nuclear energy capable country, then you have the setup to become a nuclear weapons capable country. And their specific trigger is 
Iran. It's like, I, I think we said this before, in a very oversimplified way, the best way to imagine international affairs or the way these countries interact with each other across the world is, uh, let's say, 190-something people show up to a house party and they learn that, you know, uh, there's enough beer for maybe 50 people. There's enough, like, pizza for, uh, for 60 people. But somewhere in this house, oh, there's all the stuff you need to build a gun. And <laughs> tensions are running high over the pizza and beer. And Saudi Arabia is basically in one corner hanging out with its buddies, keeping an eye on that Iran guy they don't like. And they say, well, like, look, if this guy... Gets, let's not call them guns, party favors. If this guy grabs some party favors, then I am, I'm, you guys can't stop me. I'm going to get all of the party favors because I hate that guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't like that guy. Also, I'm going to go so far as to dig a little hole in the basement level, make a second sub-basement, and then start making party favors down there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you'll never know. Because I'm telling you, I dislike that dude. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that's... That's, I mean, that's what's happening. This, this, in an overly simple way, again. But the important part here is that we are in a system with any number of opportunities for shit to go horribly, horribly wrong very quickly. And one, one change in domestic policy in one country can have massive ripple effects across this region, and stuff that happens in the Middle East can have massive ripple effects across the world, no matter. No matter how you personally feel, no matter how your government feels, uh, everybody knows based on clear examples of previous proven conspiracies that Israel will not hesitate to do anything it can by hook or by crook to prevent other countries in the region from gaining the same capabilities. This is not the, um, the government and the lawmakers of this country purposely just being like jerks for the sake of it. They consider... Uh, they considered nuclear armed countries in the Middle East, other than them, an existential threat. So how far would they go? I'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I've I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. 
And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. And we're back. And prepare yourselves because we're going outside of the box in an operation that's titled the same way. Yeah, we are. <laughs> so uh, this is, it's a bit of storytelling here. It's uh, it's kind of exciting. So here we go. So on September 6th, 2007, imagine you're hanging out somewhere in Syria. Let's say it's just after midnight local time. The Israeli Air Force uh, is thinking about Syria's growing possibility for nuclear ability. Hmm, that was kind of weird. It's like the same word twice, but not really because you added a thing to the beginning. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but Israel's thinking about doing something, like physically doing something about this. And the way they're imagining going about it is going to get around some of the negotiations that are happening on an international level to prevent things from happening like this, to um, prevent attacks from happening, to prevent countries from developing nuclear capabilities. There's all kinds of discussion, dialogue. There's red tape from all of the uh, associations that all of these countries have in the things like NATO, as you mentioned there, Ben. Oh, what do they, they call these things? These things that prevent you from doing something? Oh, laws. There are laws right. that are preventing this kind of action from occurring, but it, it doesn't matter. Israel says we're going to do something and we have to do something. So they launch an airstrike on this, uh, this one small little area in Syria. It was a suspected nuclear reactor in this place called the Al-Kibar site. Al-Kibar, K-I-B-A-R. Um, and this thing, this area, it was called the Cube. Okay, and it's really, can we call out the Haretza article already just at the top of this? Or maybe sure. we could do that later. Uh, there is an article you can read if you want to get the, some of the storytelling of this and see the cube. It's called No Longer a Secret. They just type that in. I won't give you the whole thing. Type in No Longer a Secret on Haretz. Seeing the cube made a difference for me. Yeah, yeah. So to fill in a bit of the picture here, it's... In the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. In the middle of nowhere, there's rubble around it. It looks kind of abandoned. It's a weird place for a factory to be. And officially, it's a factory. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a ton of traffic to or from the place. And where's all the infrastructure for, you know, sending electricity or power generation and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Very Tom Waits. What's he building in there? And this 
airstrike, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to examine how the Israeli government uh, came to its conclusions and why they also felt that uh, a hot escalation was necessary and why, why they also felt it was necessary to hide this from the public and never admit it for the better part of a decade. <laughs> this uh, a little bit of levity here, uh, fellow conspiracy realists. It's something I don't know if we if we mention often enough. But this conspiracy started like many government conspiracies. You'd be surprised how many of them start this way. It all began because someone somewhere screwed up. That's oh, it. Whoops! Whoops! Yeah, it's not like some crazy Monty Burns master plan. It almost never is. Someone made a mistake, and then. Other people scrambled to fix that or address it. And then try, while trying to fix it, things just like got more and more wrong. It's like if you're moving, but like you, if you're one of those people who um, when you get groceries, you try to carry as many possible from the car, right? You want to like maximize your load or whatever. And then you like one, I don't know, what do, what do people eat, Matt? Oh, uh, Mandarin oranges. Okay, so one... One like mandarin orange falls out of the bag. You've got both your hands full. You're like, oh, dang it. And you try to like wiggle your way down to pick up that orange to fix that mistake. And then all sorts of other stuff starts falling out of the bag. And the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're, uh, you've got like half of your junk out there on your, on your driveway. And your neighbor drops by and is like, just to be clear, I never said whether or not I have a car. And you're like, now is not the time, Neil. Yeah. Or whatever. And, and, and Neil's like, why'd you put your junk on the driveway? I thought we were just talking about groceries. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Neil is asking the real questions in this in this uh, scenario. So it's true, though. You know, like a lot of times it might surprise people, I think, because in the world of fiction, conspiracies are often presented as the as escalations on the part of a very powerful, very competent group. And that is not always the case. The people at the top are human beings too, for the most part. So yeah, sometimes there's a mastermind. Sometimes. Not always. Well, there are a ton of people who want to be masterminds. You know what I mean? Uh, But there are very few actual effective ones. And they're not all good either, by the way. Uh, Like you could argue... uh, you know, you could argue various despots and dictators are quote unquote good at their jobs, but uh, being good at their jobs is not necessarily good for other people. Cheney. Uh, <coughs> okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you're right. Let's let's talk about this cube. It's a big wait for it cubicle building that was at the time it was still under construction in the middle of the desert. It's uh, it has an area of more than seventeen thousand two hundred square feet, so it's really really big. Uh, it's close to sixty six feet high. Here's how this got to this point: the Israeli defense establishment had been paying attention to this mysterious factory looking structure since at least the end of two thousand six. If you think the nickname The Cube is sort of uncreative, well, that's, that falls on that. They coined the term. That's fine. They're the, you know, they're the defense establishment, not the nickname squad. So Hey, I kind of <laughs> dig it because it reminds me of that 
the film series, the cube. The cube. I was yeah. thinking of that too. What is the point of that? What's like the ultimate? What was the motivation for sticking those folks in the cube? I mean, mostly psychological torture uh, of an audience. I think <laughs> of an audience forced <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> oh boy! No, the um, so for anyone who's unaware, so the uh, it's just. Cube, I think the first yeah. one came out in the late 90s. And the idea is that these people wake up and they don't know one another from Adam or a can of paint. And they have to progress through these series of cubes that are rigged with traps. Not all of them, but some of them are rigged with traps uh, to uh, lethal traps. And I think at some point it goes to several mm-hmm. films. Don't right? spoil it. Yeah, don't spoil it. I would just say from an indie filmmaker's perspective, it is a brilliant concept because you have one set, you just change that set a little bit, and oh, you're in a new cube. Oh, does it look the same? Even though we're switching from one cube to the next part of the cube, same room, same set? Wow, this is perfect. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be that way, too, for the Mm -hmm. story. That's what they're telling, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's a really good point. Um, yeah, don't, uh, probably a lot of us in the crowd remember it today. Uh, I, without going back, I'm, I don't remember the entirety of why those people ended up there, but I think they get to it in one of the films. They Uh, get to it. They get to it. Okay. I'll have to check it out too, but let us know what you all think about the cube. So it's the end of 2006. The months are going by. We're getting into 2007 the Israeli government grows increasingly suspicious and later certain that the cube is not just some weird industrial flex in the middle of the desert, that it is actually President Bashar al-Assad's secret flagship passion project. There, They are telling their superiors, we believe that this is in fact a nuclear reactor. They got it from North Korea. Syria is working on the bomb. This is important because if that happened in one fell swoop, no matter what you think about who should or should not have the quote unquote right to nuclear power, no matter what would happen in that case, uh, Syria with this program would fundamentally change the playing field. It would remove a huge part of Israel's military technological edge. And so if you are the Israeli government, you are thinking this could open the door to terrible, terrible things. And it's a door we might not be able to close if we don't act now. And this had been brewing for a long time, right? They had known this for decades, or they had been keeping an eye on it for decades and were having a tough time getting accurate info. Oh, yeah. It goes back to, I think, 1990, or at least the early, early 1990s. That's when the the regime there in Syria, it was known that there was an interest in procuring at least not only weapons themselves, but the ability to create weapons, especially through research facilities. So you kind of have that cover, right? Uh, we're, we're doing this for energy. Um, and that's that's when the Western world, well... The United States, Israel, probably uh, England and a couple other powers, the UK, they were um, just really paying attention to Syria in particular. And Israel really then started paying attention again because of just proximity 
and because how much it would shift the playing field if if it were to occur. Um, but this was only after there was a serious intelligence gap in Libya. That's when that's when Israel was like, "Uh oh, if we didn't know this specific thing about Libya, maybe we don't know some specifics about Syria and we're missing some info here. And what could they be doing in that garage if there's no way for us to peek in? Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's something really interesting that comes from uh, the guy who was the head of the intelligence division at Mossad in 2003. And uh, his name is Amnon Sufran, and you can hear his surprise, <laughs> frustration, and, and no small amount of fury uh, when he talks about how he, how he figured this out. Uh, he says, on December 19th, 2003, a Saturday morning, I turned on the radio and heard on a news broadcast that the Americans and the British had persuaded Libya to dismantle its nuclear program. The next morning, I assembled my people and I said, we had experienced two total failures here. We had absolutely no idea that such a program, meaning in Libya, even existed. And second, we didn't know that the negotiations to dismantle it had been going on for eight months. We started to back analyze the Libyan program and try to figure out where else in the region similar programs could be hiding. So imagine that. Your entire job is to know as much as possible about stuff like this. And you hear it, you know, on like NPR. Yeah. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. Uh, wow. I'm not hungry anymore. Let's get to work. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's that's the thing that gets me because it's like um, hearing that kind of stuff for an industry professional through the news and having it be the first time you've heard this is is a recipe for a heart attack that's not only is it highly unusual but it means that you need you have hundreds of things you need to have done by yesterday and uh we're going to take a pause for a word from our sponsor and return to explore a little bit more about what sufrin did once he realized he had been like scooped by cnn that's crazy Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. 
Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. And we are back. So Ben, let's uh let's jump back to Sufreen and Mossad. See what they were doing. Yeah, so uh, about a month of invest months worth of investigations ensue. Sufrin and the research teams over at Mossad say, okay, Libya surprised us in a way that we did not care for. And it looks like the problem is much closer to home than we imagined. Syria at some point has entered the race to build the bomb. They're not at drawing board stage. It's not a series of like backroom conversations at Davos or whatever. They're doing this. Uh, And it caught us unaware because reasonably, most of our investigations focus on Iran instead of our neighbor to the north. And then uh, this is where Sufrin talks a little bit more about their discovery. He says, the Koreans and the Syrians built a camouflage structure on top of the reactor that made it look like a factory from the outside. You don't see what's happening inside. It is far from any settlement. There is no reason for anyone to be in this area except for herdsmen. We began to suspect that There, in broad daylight, a reactor was hiding. Yep. And in January of 2007, satellite photos revealed that there was a pipeline leading directly from the cube to the Euphrates. This is important because if you're a researcher, you know, you have to be very careful. You don't want to read tea leaves. You know what I mean? Um, You want to have real proof. So they started to think, okay. Middle of nowhere, nobody really has any business being here except for shepherds, herding professionals. Uh, So this is a cooling system, and that's one of the big things you need for a reactor. So even at that point, they're not saying this is definitely a reactor. They're saying, ah, quacks like a duck. I want to be too conclusive, but there's there's some definite quacking going on. And then Mossad or someone, excuse me, had a breakthrough. Uh, this is this is a little dicey. So at this point, I'm trying to think of the correct way to say this. This is a, an event that occurs in Vienna in early March of 2007, 
And what we know about it is based on the work of an American journalist. That's right. A journalist named David Makovsky, who was writing in The New Yorker in 2012. A man named Ibrahim Othman, who was head of the Syrian Atomic Energy Commission, had gone to Austria and he was participating or he's doing this to participate in these deliberations of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And, of course, Israel wants to know what's going on. So Asselo Mossad agents from the Cachette unit broke into the the, uh, the place where he was staying. It was an apartment. It's where Othman was staying. And within less than an hour, they, quote, vacuumed up the information that was on the personal computer that this, this man was using. He's a Syrian official. And <laughs> it, it is so funny. Like, this is this is how it works, right? He leaves the apartment for just a little bit, for just a brief period of time, however long it was. And like special agents from an intelligence agency break into the apartment, access the computer and then get out of there. It's just crazy to imagine that that can happen and probably does happen all the time. (laughs) Can you imagine that's very common? (laughs) Well, this is at least according to the reporting from David Makovsky. In the Mm -hmm. New Yorker, that's what this is what happened, because Israel never officially acknowledged that this occurred, that their intelligence agency had anything to do with it or even accepted responsibility for anything occurring in that apartment. And then we see another series of uh, (laughs) series of missteps, right? Someone screws up and that leads to this kind of situation. Their their hack found that Othman's computer usage definitely left something to be desired. He he had 35 photographs, at least, from inside this building in the Syrian desert. And in the pictures, everything the more uh, paranoid folks in in Mossad and intelligence were saying is confirmed. Uh, There's a visible photograph of this reactor. There are fusion cylinders and there are bars. And there are uh, clearly non-Syrian people working who are later identified as experts from North Korea, from the Korean Peninsula. And so they say, okay, well, game on. We were right in the worst way. Can, can we just say point out here, even in 2007, it was possible to doctor some images and it was possible to plant images onto a machine, especially if you are an elite intelligence agency that is broken into someone's apartment, you could ostensibly place images or any files onto a machine's hard drives or, you know, even virtually onto some accessible virtual drive. It's possible. We just have to put that out there. Doesn't mean that that's what happened. Yeah, that's a really good observation, you know, because the technology available might surprise a lot of people. So this is 2000. Seven, but consider that Stuxnet, which disabled a lot of Iranian nuclear research, uh, it's an Israeli U.S. system, uh, that was first uncovered in 2010, but people have been working on it since 2005. So things are a little bit further along behind the curtain than they might appear to the public. It is possible. That's a very important point. But to the non-intelligence, I'm not calling them dumb, I'm saying they don't work in intelligence, to the (laughs) non-intelligence members and leaders of the Israeli government, this is a smoking gun. And so Omer makes the decision, Ehud Omer makes the decision to share this information with uh, the U.S. 
And he was hoping, apparently, that he could show these documents, these photographs, to the George W. Bush administration, which was the administration in power at the time, and that they would say, holy smokes, you know, hold, hold, my, hold my beer. We're going to go destroy this on our own. We cannot have this happen. But instead, what they found was that after they met with President Bush, with W. Bush, with uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, with uh, the top people, the CIA, the NSC, the National Security Council, the U.S. wasn't super on board with this. The, the kind of pro-war hawks were, had one idea. Their idea was, let's do it now. Let's bomb it. Let no stone stand on another. Let's do it publicly so we can set an example. And then other folks were saying, well, I don't know if there's a, enough proof for us. And then uh, reportedly, the president at the time himself said, you know, I'm not persuaded. Uh, we need a lot more than this to justify taking unilateral action on a sovereign state, because that's what we would be doing. We can tell the rest of the world whatever we want, but the fact of the matter is we would just be deciding to fly over there and bomb something. And that's usually, you know, there are channels for that, right? There are international mechanisms and other steps, uh, but this is the ticking time bomb argument. It is the ticking time bomb argument. And we have to keep in mind that the Bush administration and American intelligence agencies had learned a lot of, well, maybe they hadn't learned a lot of hard lessons. They'd gone through a lot of trials and tribulations because of actions they had taken in the Middle East over the past, you know, four or five years prior to that, just in, you know, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the other actions that were taken. Right. Like, uh, for instance, I mean, the, the big badger in the bag here is the false reports of WMDs. Or, you know, according to some listeners, some people, some of you have written in that fully believe, especially some of you who are deployed, believe that WMDs were found and they were just hidden uh, from the public for some reason. It's a murky world uh, in, in some of the discoveries or things that didn't exist out there in Iraq. I still wonder about that story about that pallet of a, like a billion dollars in cash. It's just yeah. gone somewhere. That one pallet, all them pallets, man, <laughs> telling you. I know. Weird stuff. We're never in the right time at the right place for those kind of giveaways. <laughs> it's just, do you ever think about that? I don't know. Well, uh, just make sure there's lots and lots of natural resources directly beneath your feet and they may just fall from the sky. Mm, I really should have checked the uh, lithium content of that property about, but they they were not unified. The U.S. government, its leaders were not unified on what action should occur. So apparently, after his last, the last attempted a pitch didn't work, Omer told the U.S. president, look, if you don't do it, we will. And what was George Bush's reply? This is so weird. Well, man's got to do what a man's got to do. Which is what? <laughs> I get it. And trust me, I get it. There's a cube out in the desert. Bomb it. I get it. Take it out. He's saying, you know, the U.S. is not leading this. Yes. Uh, so a man's got to do what a man's got to do is, is a weird, weird answer. I mean, shout out to uh, Dr. Horrible. 
you guys remember that one. I do. do you remember Dr. Horrible? The sing-along blog, I think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. Still holds up. Anyway, this all Ooh. leads... I just want to make sure I was speaking as that came in so we can really get the full brunt of that thunderstrike. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, so we... Um, so I think we've done an okay job outlining the concerns that led to this conspiracy, this decision to unilaterally strike this structure, despite the serious risk of Syrian retaliation. And it came from – the rationalization came from something called uh, the Begin Doctrine, which is this term for the Israeli government's position that uh, – it's okay to make preventative strikes, uh, preemptive strikes, uh, so long as in doing so you're preventing one of your enemies from gaining access to any kind of WMD, uh, but nuclear weapons especially. And they had already done stuff supported by this doctrine earlier uh, in Iraq. Operation Opera, Operation Outside the Box is another another iteration of this. Uh, but Operation Opera got a lot of bad press. Operation Outside the Box did not. It is quite plausible that unless you have lived in some aspect of this world, geographically or in your profession, you would have not heard of this. Uh, but they, they, sent, they, they sent some major stuff, and they did some pretty impressive, just objectively impressive, electronic jamming and signal... Uh, signal intelligence work like they had a, they had um 10 f15s or f15i's uh fly along with an escort of f16 jets and then signal intelligence aircraft three of those fighter jets get ordered back seven continue into syria and then israel just doesn't say anything yeah just uh, silence and one of the main reasons that the entire thing was kept so quiet is because Syria did a an excellent job at covering its tracks, covering up its activities of what were actually going down at the cube. And um, they also didn't cooperate with that atomic energy uh, group. So I don't know. It's weird. It's almost like on Syria's behalf, it's almost like, oh, OK, you got us. Hey, no, fair play. You got us. OK. We'll, we just, we'll just be quiet. We'll just go over here. We understand. I don't know. That's not exactly what happened. But at least at least they knew that they had been caught, that their clandestine nuclear program had, had been caught, if that's, in fact, what was happening there. Well, they also they made kind of a bet, which was an interesting bet, I think. They said, based on what we know about how secret this is, how uh, limited information about this is, if we attack in this way, we are going to force the president and government of Syria into what they called the denial space. The denial space is interesting because they're saying if this attack avoids embarrassing and publicly humiliating Assad, there's a non-zero chance that he'll decide to hold back and that he won't respond by going to war because it's an event with a, a small footprint. It's quiet. It's a far away from where a lot of civilians are living. Israel doesn't take responsibility for it. And if we don't crow or call too loudly in the aftermath, 
then that gives Assad this space, this denial space, this opportunity to downplay the event. So we're going to launch this surprise attack. And the trick is uh, not to take responsibility immediately afterwards and then just push ahead and we'll have like this diplomatic effort. While we're sitting, while we're not publicly saying we did it behind closed doors, we're going to go to other countries and we're going to be like, check out these photos, bro. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I told you so. Uh, so this led to their calculation and, and their bet did work because there were signals that Syria was obviously on high alert after this. They put long range missiles armed with uh, chemical warfare warheads rather uh into play, but they didn't retaliate because they were worried about that car that may or may not be in the garage. And they thought, you know, if we deploy something, this may be the excuse Israel needs to take these weapons of mass destruction for a ride around the block, which is a very real possibility and very dangerous one. So fast forward more than 10 years on March 21st, 2018, Israel officially acknowledged the operation and they and when they did so they released more material uh, to justify what they had done to say like hey played fast and loose with some laws but we've been pretty clear uh, that we we felt like we had a good reason to do it and depending on what you believe this may have prevented a much larger conflict in the future this was a conspiracy was it successful? I mean, maybe for a while. Uh, and, and also, you know, it leads to the question, Matt, that we were, we were asking before. Like, this is, this is clearly the shadow of A.Q. Khan. You can trace the knowledge that he gained, knowledge that he earned, and the knowledge that he disseminated throughout the world. Uh, but who should have the right to possess nuclear weapons? I mean, we see a spectrum of answers. Um, a lot of countries that have them now take the flying car approach. Like, it's really cool if I have a flying car, as long as no one else has one. Otherwise, there might be accidents. But then there are other, you know, like um, nonprofits that say, oh, I've got the answer for you. No one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one should have this. Well, yeah, and some some really are the the answer for some people really is everyone. Like literally the only way to stop it now is if everybody has nukes because you can't you can never confirm that any country has zero nukes. You it's it would be very difficult to fully confirm <laughs> that any one country no matter what their capabilities outside of nuclear weapons to confirm that they don't have them. Right. Yeah, that's that's the problem. It's tough to prove that it's not around. And if you think about it logically, the fewer countries that have nuclear weapons, the more valuable they become. So if everybody officially agreed that, let, let's say, over a period of, I don't know, 10, 20 years, it would reduce the world's population of nuclear warheads down to zero, immediately what would happen, or somewhere between those two decades... There would be this huge program, very well funded by any country that could afford it, to keep some in secret. You know, yeah. I mean? just just for us, just for later, just to hide all their nukes, nukes across Iowa and the heartland. Uh, so <laughs> put them on subs, put them on yeah. subs that are hard to track and could be anywhere in the world's oceans. How about this? Everybody gets one. 
Everybody gets just the one. (laughs) (laughs) You have to bring enough for class, folks. Uh, That's, I mean, that's a question. And it's, it's a tough question to answer. You can make the argument, as we've stated before, that there are some groups that might be better suited to have them and not do destructive things. But nuclear weapons are designed to do destructive things. You know, um, they don't detonate and produce flowers. Honestly, they produce arguably one mushroom and it's a deadly one. But the, the this is an idea the world still quarrels with. And the conversation is very much, um, very much led and run by the countries that are currently nuclear powers. And those countries are at a, a standoff that's been going on for a long time. And neither, especially Russia and the U.S., neither are going to back down because they envision a world where they may be in the position in some ways that Libya was. It's, it's something that doesn't really have an answer. And so for uh, folks who agree with the policy of preemptive unilateral strikes, you know, there's a clear argument for the greater good. For folks who disagree with it, uh, there's the idea that this may have been, despite the official lines, despite the later declassified stuff, there's a Gulf of Tonkin argument. Like maybe this was just politically convenient. Uh, Maybe this was an opportunity more than an accident or an attempt to repair a cover-up. I'm imagining a scenario where representatives from the DPRK like struck a deal to start a factory somewhere in Syria and then secretly just they were building nuclear weapons or are starting to build the capabilities to have nuclear weapons created in that facility. And this, you know, Syrians had no idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's, the thing. No one ever has any idea (laughs) until it benefits them, right? Like I I had no idea. Oh, of course I knew that. And then I knew it all along. Yeah. Uh, And that, you know, that happens to everybody in their personal life too. But, uh, but, this is uh, – you hit on a crucial point, Matt. I don't know if I told you this, but I spoke with um, diplomatic representatives of the DPRK a number of years ago uh, for not something sketchy, I assure uh-huh, you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, was, sure. It was for school. Come on, man. And they um, – it was strange because I was surprised by how openly antagonistic the U.S. forces escorting them were. And I was surprised by how openly the uh, DPRK representatives spoke about nuclear weaponry uh, or nuclear power or hydroelectric power uh, to the point where some of the U.S. State Department folks uh, cut the lecture short. Uh, They did not want the Q&A to continue. So we have to be careful when we hear these varying, you know, narratives and perspectives. Um, Of course, these kind of things are, are things that later historians have to suss out uh, the truth of. But we want to pass the torch to you folks, or we want to pass the warhead to you. Uh, what do you think? Was this the right or wrong action to take? Uh, and perhaps even more importantly, what other countries might be secretly working toward the creation of a bomb today? And if you believe those countries exist, then how should they be handled? Let us know. We try to be easy to find online. Um, got my eye squarely on Jamaica. Looking at you guys. Oh, making making nukes out there. I know it. 
No, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm thinking Macedonia. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah, classic Macedonians. <laughs> no, I <laughs> I think we're, we're joking. We're, we're joking. We are joking. Sorry, apologies to Macedonia and Jamaica. That's right. But please let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your reasoning, you know, b- behind your opinions. We, we'd love to just understand. And you can tell us those opinions in all kinds of different ways. You can find us on social media where we are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. We are Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. If you don't want to do those things, hey, you can tell us how you feel in a review on iTunes. Hey, leave a leave a positive one. That'd be amazing. Leave a negative one. Wouldn't be so amazing, but we'd appreciate it. Any No, we wouldn't appreciate it. You know what? Just just be nice if you can. And if uh, if you don't particularly enjoy sipping the social meads, uh, if you're a person who uh, doesn't doesn't feel called to review things, uh, but you have a story to share, we'd still love to hear it. You can call us directly on our phone number. We are one eight three three. S-T-D-W-Y-T-K. Three minutes. Those three minutes are yours. Give yourself a cool nickname. Let us know if we can use your voice and or story on the air. Uh, And then tell us what's on your mind. Most importantly, if you have something to relate that needs more than three minutes, do not censor yourself. Don't feel like you have to just give bullet points. You can tell us the story in full. You can send us a message. We read every single message we get. How do I send you that message, you're asking? Well, the answer is simple. You can head on over to your computer, browser, device thingy of choice and send us a good old-fashioned email where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. 
This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.